Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Naomi Soto, your co-host and health policy professional based in California. And I'm Brendan Steinle, your other co-host and communication specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning talk shows. We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the host, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Sunday, April 18th, 2021. 2021. Lots of topics discussed today, and I think should be interesting today. We really are probably going to cover a broader range of topics than we've seen the last year. We're kind of getting back into the swing of lots of things discussed as opposed to just one global scary pandemic. Yeah, I agree with that. So today we're going to switch things up a little bit. Smidge. We've decided to move ratings up to the beginning so that it doesn't uh, take too long at the end, and it's kind of a good scene setter yeah it's kind of when we're talking about the shows where we've each covered kind of the overall grade they would get or rating they would get yeah so speaking of which shows did you cover today naomi yeah so it was my turn to do three shows so i looked at meet the press Mm -hmm. this week and also state of the union Overall, I think all the shows did a pretty decent job. Nothing seemed too egregious. I think Meet the Press, I would give a four. You know, I'm going to be generous. I think I would even give it a five. Whoa, is this your first five ever? It's a very lukewarm five because fives make me feel weird. But I have... No such thing. (laughs) It's a very good episode. Yeah, it was a very solid episode and I found a lot of value in it. I learned some. I was entertained a smidge. And there was... I I had no outrage moments. So kudos. I think I would give this week a four. I think they did a better job of uh, framing important conversations, and they did it with one of the topics in a very distinct way from how they did it just last week. So I felt like they learned and quickly did something different, and I'll talk about it in my quality moment. I think I would give Save the Union a three because it was a little bit less valuable than this week, but they were very close. But a smidge jingoistic for my taste. Mm. But overall still i think held its own what did you cover today brendan so i looked at the other two i looked at face the nation and i looked at fox news sunday and you know it's it's so interesting but i feel like face the nation the the coverage was certainly different there was certainly a lot of focus on world affairs international affairs and i can sometimes really be a fan of that but this week i don't think that Margaret Brennan did a very good job. This is her last episode before she goes on maternity leave for a bit, and John Dickerson will be returning. Oh, John Dickerson's going to be the host. To fill her shoes. The whole time? That's what I heard. Interesting. Yep, that's how they kind of did their little handoff at the end. It was also an interesting episode because there was not a single partisan on the show. Nobody with a D or an R next to their names. No elected officials at all. Very interesting. Yeah, very interesting. But... Overall, she's like by DC. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <it> right. Never. <laughs> yeah. Overall, I think I'd give it a three. It was an okay episode. I don't know if it would be a bad episode, but it's definitely closer to bad than good. So okay, kind of shading towards, shading towards bad. C minus. Yeah. Although I would say, if 
I was hearing you say that. I would say, no, there's no such thing. It's okay or it's bad, one or the other. <laughs> <laughs> what about Fox News Sunday? Fox News Sunday was a good episode. It had a longer panel than I think I expected there to be, but it was actually a pretty good panel. And so I will give Fox News Sunday a four. It was good. It wasn't great. It was good. And we've changed quality questionable just a smidge. We each, instead of having one of each, we... Hand off. One does quality, one does questionable. Correct. There's only one. One for the whole show. And I'm excited for this. I have the quality, you have the questionable. Which should we start off first? Why don't we begin with the quality? Okay, I'm excited for this quality. So my quality moment is something that I saw on this week. It was hosted by Martha Raddatz. It was the first guest that was on the show. If you remember last week, I think maybe in the ratings, I don't know exactly when, but I mentioned that it felt like when George had a little legal panel and they were talking about the Derek Chauvin case, specifically regarding the murder of George Floyd, it felt a little like court TV, like yeah, I remember legal you pundits that. just kind of talking about what they're seeing and kind of giving the play-by-play. Yeah. That was not what Martha Raddatz did. She had the attorney for the Floyd family on and talk about this case and what it means and what black Americans and hopefully a lot of families are feeling this week as the verdict is coming out. She's had that attorney on in the past. Yeah. Exactly. And starting the episode with him, I thought, really centered the conversation. There was still a legal panel afterward, but it didn't center on their perspectives, kind of their legal expertise. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, Dan Abrams, legal correspondent, whatever. It centered on, like, how people who live this every day are actually seeing this. So I have two clips from this interview with Benjamin Krupp. Again, he's the attorney for George Floyd and also a plethora of other families who have also been faced with police violence. We're going to look at it all this morning, beginning with the trial of Derek Chauvin in the death of George Floyd. The closing arguments are set for tomorrow. Ben Crump is the Floyd family attorney, and he is also representing the family of Dante Wright. Mr. Crump joins us now. Mr. Crump, you have represented countless families in civil suits, including the family of 17-year-old Trayvon Martin and the family of 18-year-old Michael Brown, who was killed by a white police officer in Ferguson, Missouri. The officers involved in those shootings were either acquitted or no charges were filed. What kind of outcome do you expect in the trial of Derek Chauvin? And I also represented the family of Breonna Taylor. We have to remember they're not only killing black men, but they're killing black women like Breonna and Pamela Turner uh, down in Houston, Texas. You also said that you will not stop until there's meaningful policing, justice reform, until we reach the goal of true equality. What does that look like to you? Well, it means that we hold police officers accountable And we changed the laws in America where you have the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act passed to change the culture and the behavior of policing in America, especially as it relates to marginalized minorities uh, and especially black people because when a black person is stopped for a traffic violation, it should not end up in a death sentence where there's uh, Dante Wright where she claims that she was trying to pull the taser and pull her gun, even though 
you have the gun on the dominant side, the taser on the non-dominant side, and the fact that the gun weighs two and a half pounds and the taser weighs eight ounces. The gun is all black and the taser is vivid yellow. And she holds that out there for about five to six seconds. But yet she says she meant to tase him but even tasing him, Martha, is troubling because it's still an excessive use of force. And we see this over and over again when it comes to black people in America, whether it's George Floyd with a $20 allegation of a counterfeit bill. That should have been a ticket. The store clerk testified in the trial. He's not even sure if George realized that it was a counterfeit $20 bill or with the lieutenant in Virginia when you're pepper spraying him when that should have been a ticket. And certainly this uh, pretest your stop for an alleged expired tag should have been a ticket. But when it's black people, they do the most, Martha. And we see when it's our white brothers and sisters, they give them the benefit of the doubt, the benefit of consideration, the benefit of professionalism. And when it's us black people, we can't even get the benefit of humanity. Wow, that was a powerful, powerful statement. So powerful. A couple of things I just wanted to share with these two clips. One, I thought it was so powerful in the right at the start of the interview where Mr. Crump qualifies his experiences also representing the families of Breonna Taylor and Pamela Turner, two women who have were killed and by police in, in their respective towns. And it it's something so small, but it's reclaiming the narrative, right? It's reclaiming the narrative by someone who is working in this day in and day out and saying, you know what? You don't get to forget these other people just because it's like convenient in your introduction. No, it, like probably no ill will of Martha, right? But making sure the audience remembers that this is a bigger issue, even if they're not following it super closely. Well, and like you say, reclaiming the narrative. The narrative might be, oh, these are black men who are being targeted and it's a problem with black males. And he's like, no, that's not the case. It's genuinely not the case. Right. Exactly. And then in that second clip, I mean, there's so many parts of this that are so powerful and stay with you long after the interview is over. I think all the disparities between the claims of the officer who shot and killed Dante Wright that she meant to pull the his taser her taser out and she pulled her gun and killed the 20-year-old during this traffic stop those are the types of details that don't come out in the legal panel with Dan Abrams yeah right and those are the details that stay with the audience that if you're not following this super closely, you could just be like, oh, well, what, what did he do wrong? Or, you know, whatever. And like, whatever your discriminatory assumptions might be are completely broken down with facts like these. And so it's so important to have people like Attorney Krupp on to set the tone of how you're talking about this. And, and he goes even wider, as you included in the clip, talking about how there is a solution to this as simple as stop using force, just hand out tickets if you think there is a violation rather than using force. That is not necessary and it can end in violence. Yeah, if the tickets are the solution in white communities, why can't they be the solution in black communities? Exactly. Very, very well said. And also very powerful rhetoric from him at the end there where he says... 
essentially white people get professionalism, the benefit of professionalism, and black people can't even get the benefit of humanity. They don't get the benefit of the doubt, the benefit of consideration, the benefit of professionalism. Super, super powerful. Yeah. So I was so annoyed with this conversation last week when George had it with, it was Danny Abrams and I, I think maybe Pierre Thomas. I don't know. There was somebody else. I shouldn't just blame Danny Abrams. He's just the one I remember. But And that is his job to go into that detail, don't you think, on the... I don't know. You it, heard it and I didn't. Yeah. The facilitation of the conversation didn't even bring those details up. Right, right. Right? So I'm not saying Dan Abrams doesn't know it. It's just the the nature of the conversation was not about the actual experience of black Americans. It's like, oh, is this too political or what's going to happen or, you know, and that's that was not what was ha- happening today with Martha Raddatz. Brendan, take us to the side. What's your what's the questionable moment for this week? So my questionable moment is a series of questioning that went on for a bit from Margaret Brennan to Linda Thomas Greenfield. She is the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. And she spoke about a broad range of topics, but Brennan spent quite a few minutes on the topic of a recent speech that Linda Thomas-Greenfield gave. And go ahead and listen to these two clips, and then we'll talk about it on the other side. This past week, you uh, gave a speech that I want to ask you about because it's gotten quite a lot of attention. Um, You said the original sin of slavery weaved white supremacy into our founding documents and principles. You talked about white supremacy being linked to the killing of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, continued discrimination against Muslims and Asian Americans. America likes to think it provides moral leadership to the world. Are you saying we're deluding ourselves? No, I think we're being tremendous leaders. Our country is not perfect, but we continue to perfect it. Those imperfections are part of our history, and we have to talk about them. It's, it's our strength that we can talk about our imperfections to the world and call out other nations for those same imperfections. So it's not a a criticism, it's an acknowledgement of our history, it's an acknowledgement of where we started. But we need to look at where we've come. The fact that I came from a segregated high school and I'm now the permanent representative of the United States at the United Nations says everything about what our country is about. But it is precisely because of the the role you have as a cabinet member that it drew so much criticism. I mean, the Wall Street Journal editorial board called you the ambassador of Blame America First, saying it sounded like you were reciting Chinese propaganda about America and that you believe your job is to bring critical race theory to the world with a focus on criticizing your own country. To be clear, were you comparing bigotry in America to mass atrocities carried out against minorities around the world? I was acknowledging what is a fact in the United States. Racism does exist in this country. And I think it was a powerful message. Imagine any other country doing that. Our country, the uniqueness of our country is that we can self-criticize and we can move forward. And our values are clear. 
and the purpose of that speech was to lay out our values, but also acknowledge our imperfections and acknowledge that we are, are moving forward. So I put this in the questionable category, and it took me a minute to like realize why I felt so uncomfortable with this line of questioning from Margaret Brennan. And then I realized, you know, we often see, and it is a very common tactic from the hosts of these shows, where they will take as quotes criticism from people on the other side of the aisle against their subjects. They'll say, hey, look, Republicans are saying this. Why don't you answer to this? Or Democrats are saying this. Why don't you answer to this? Or there have been a lot of there's been a lot of criticism out there of these of the, you know, of you on this. Please, you know, defend yourself from this criticism. Sometimes it's super valid criticism. Sometimes it's very politically toned criticism, but it's criticism. And one might say, well, this is kind of what we're seeing here as well. But I just want you to step back and look at the experience of this person, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, which she, she herself describes here, right, of growing up and going to a segregated high school. This is someone who has lived the racial disparities in our country, the racial inequities that still exist and back then were literally enshrined in law, okay? And the criticisms that Margaret Brennan cites, not just one, but one after the other after the other are, and I'm going to, I'm going to note it here, that she is the ambassador of blame America. That those are the terms that were printed in the Wall Street Journal by the Wall Street Journal editorial board. They called her a name. They made up a stupid name when she is the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. And the name they made up was the ambassador of blame America because she acknowledged America's past. And then they said that by acknowledging America's past, and this is Brennan repeating, that she was reciting Chinese propaganda about America. That is so far from reality, and it is so much name-calling. It is so much hyperbole. It is, frankly, insulting. And Margaret Brennan is repeating, and she is amplifying insults to the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations as if they are legitimate, real criticisms. Right. It, it's the decision to use petty yes. criticisms as criticism of policy. Exactly. And so that is why this is questionable. Certainly there will be criticism of the Biden administration, as there is and was of the Trump administration, as there is of many public figures. Some of that criticism will be very valid. Some of that criticism will be very petty. Some of it will be insulting. And there is no requirement at all for the press to amplify the insults because they don't do anybody any good whatsoever. Or at least, I mean, I think we have to be careful with implying or even if it mistakenly implies that we think like some of these insults to be ignored because I think ignoring poor behavior and politics is proven to be not an effective strategy and you have to kind of call out BS when it happens but it's one thing to for 
a journalist for a show host to say this is inappropriate, this is unacceptable, or this is not true criticisms or whatever. It's another thing to use those quotes directly in the interview with the subject themselves to answer to as if that is valuable Mm -hmm. criticism of their work. Right. And I think that's the part that's like, feels really gross to me. Yeah, exactly. Like Margaret Brennan, she could have said simply, you've been criticized for this speech. And those who criticize you say that you are essentially equating current bigotry in America to mass atrocities being carried out around the world. Do you equate, equate these two? Yes or no? There's no need to amplify stupid name calling like the ambassador of blame America, which sounds like something that someone puts on a like an angry bumper sticker. Like, come on, this is ridiculous. Or to say that because she spoke about America's past, she is reciting Chinese propaganda about America. Like, there is no evidence of that. So why are you repeating it as if it is valid? It's it's just not. So that's that's the questionable. Don't amplify insults. Amplify real criticism. That's good life advice in general. And that's the media's role, to mediate the conversation in an intelligent way. Naomi, let's go into the... Something about journalism. We're kind of on that role already. Absolutely. So we wanted to talk about the Johnson & Johnson pause that happened this week. So unless you've been under a rock, but maybe you have, life happens. The One of the three vaccines that are being used right now in the U.S. to administer the COVID vaccine is been put on a pause because there has been six cases of adverse reactions, specifically blood clots, in women in the U.S. I think it was like between 18 and 49. There have been, what is it, like six million doses actually administered. So extremely rare, but... The FDA and then, of course, I think, believe the CDC, like vaccine advisory, something, something decided to pause for, I think it's now like a week or maybe 10 days total to so they can look into it. Yeah, absolutely. And so this resulted in lots of criticism and uproar over the last week with a number of everybody. Yeah, basically (laughs) criticizing this decision, saying, look, there are other risky drugs out there that are way, way, way more risky than this one. And the goal of those drugs is not to stop a pandemic. Like a pandemic is super important. So why are you stopping this? And also in a world where people are vaccine hesitant, why are you feeding the flames of vaccine hesitancy and making people feel uncomfortable about this while you study it? Like just study it and then make your decision. Like you don't need to stop it right away necessarily especially since the risks seem so low. But, okay, so Naomi, we both had conversations about this, so we're going to combine our journalism segment, right? Yes. So I had comments or thoughts about how that message was getting communicated. You had comments and observations about the questions themselves. Yes. In fact, let me go. This rolls right into Margaret Brennan once again and Face the Nation. So, Margaret Brennan had an entire conversation, extended discussion, with Dr. Anthony Fauci, chief medical advisor to President Biden and still director of the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, an extended conversation about this very topic, Johnson & Johnson. So I'm going to play some clips 
all the questions that Margaret Brennan asked on this and take a listen to the specific criticisms that she wanted to surface about this issue, since basically the main issue is about the criticisms of this decision, whether it was a good decision or not. Take a listen to what she decided to focus on in those criticisms. But right now, about 5% of U.S. vaccine supply is sidelined because of this pause on the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Can you explain here, I mean, what we have seen in public reporting is that it's six women between the ages of 18 to 45 who developed clots in their brain within two weeks of receiving the vaccine. Have there been any further cases and will the restrictions be lifted this week? You told CBS this week that one of the things that you think needs to be investigated is the role of hormones here. Uh, Looking at the fact that these women are of childbearing age, you wanted to look at whether they were on birth control. Does that indicate that the restrictions could be gender-based? So the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, as I understand it, as a layperson, it's an inactivated cold virus injected into someone. The Moderna and Pfizer vaccine, these mRNA vaccines, are very different kind of vaccine. When you were on this program in February, I asked you whether Johnson & Johnson was an inferior vaccine. You said, no, no, it is not. You can't say that. Do you still believe that? So did you catch where, you know, which criticism she was highlighting there? No, because there were no criticisms at all. Margaret Brennan didn't even acknowledge that this was a decision that was controversial. She didn't even acknowledge the controversy in her discussion with Dr. Fauci. Not one word acknowledging that this decision might not be the best decision. So this was just unbelievable to me that in a time where there was widespread criticism of the pause in this Johnson & Johnson vaccine and its effect on vaccine hesitancy, there was no acknowledgement of it. But guess what happened to make it even worse? Scott Gottlieb was on immediately after Anthony Fauci, and here's what she asked Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former FDA commissioner. Dr. Fauci said we would know no later than Friday whether this pause on J&J would be lifted. Um, You may not want to answer this question, but if you were still FDA commissioner, would you have gone ahead with this pause? Wait, so why, if you're watching this show, why would Margaret Brennan even ask this question, right? Like, She didn't provide any background on why someone would even question the idea of pausing the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Like, that has not been anything she has presented on the show whatsoever as an issue about whether the vaccine should be paused or not. Like, that, that was nothing she asked Dr. Fauci about. And now she's asking Dr. Gottlieb whether he would do it or not. Like, if I'm a viewer who doesn't know what happened this last week, I have no idea why this question is being asked. Like, why are you asking the FDA commissioner for the former president to second guess a decision by the people currently in charge when you didn't even present that as a reason for guessing at all? Well, I think part of it, too, makes the implication that people have been following this along as super closely all week. There was the announcement that this was going to be paused, I think, for like a day or two. Then there was the decision to extend that pause for a week. There was, you know, kind of all the blowback on whether or not this pause was going to increase hesitancy or, you know, all all these different iterations in the last, I think, just like four days, five days. Yeah. And her interview implies as if this 
situation's been lasting for weeks and everyone knows what's happening. Yeah, I mean, the second part does, the, the Gottlieb interview does, but the Fauci interview doesn't even acknowledge the controversy. It's just so bizarre. It's a very bizarre thing. And it seemed like she was being super deferential to Dr. Fauci and the administration's decision-making in not even acknowledging there was a controversy and then oddly inviting criticism of Fauci and the administration without laying the groundwork for the audience to understand what the hell is going on. So that's so interesting because Dr. Fauci was on all three shows that I follow today. And in particular, I thought his interview on Meet the Press was actually very helpful and very illuminating, not just in talking about why they decided, they being kind of the FDA and the CDC vaccine advisory group, which I always forget their name, but all these acronyms are hard to keep up with, but trying to explain the validity behind the decision-making to pause the J&J vaccine for a few days. And given all that intense blowback that you shared, Brendan, or that you kind of described, I thought the interview on Meet the Press was effective in kind of saying, like, everyone calm down. This is where, like, the scientists are. This is what they're studying. And the announcement on Friday will likely clear up a lot of that confusion. But there's nothing I can say right now. In particular, I thought this one clip that I saw in Meet the Press both explained the pause and also explained the concern of the vaccine to begin with. I'm sure you've seen the survey. Since the announcement of the pause, vaccine hesitancy is up. We've seen vaccine appointments go unfilled. I know you've made the case that, hey, you know, please look, the fact that we're telling you should give you more confidence, not less. But unfortunately, it appears that, the, that it is the reverse Do you look at how this sort of spiraled out here and wonder if there should have been a different way you guys handled this? Well, you know, what we do, Chuck, and that's why we keep saying we leave it to the science. We have the experienced FDA and CDC people who are looking at it and monitoring it. You know, there's one case, then two, three, four. And then when they got to six, they say we really need to pause You know, hopefully it'll be a quite temporary pause to do a couple of things. One, examine that hopefully there are not several more out there to alert physicians, stay heads up for this. We're concerned it's a very serious complication, although it is extremely rare, as you well put. You know, you have six cases in close to seven million people. The other thing about it, Chuck, that's important is that you want to let the physicians out there know who Mm -hmm. might see women or anybody with this condition that the standard way you would think about treating clots is with the anticoagulant heparin. That would be contraindicated in this case because heparin could actually make things worse. So there's a twofold reason for doing it. One, to pause and take a look in more detail about it. And two, to make sure that the physicians treat people appropriately. This is the excellent kind of reality-based question that acknowledges the reality of the controversy that was totally missing from Face the Nation. And it's a really important question, and I think a really effective answer, because the question acknowledges that this decision will have detrimental effects on hesitancy. Why is this decision still worth it? Right. And 
understanding that it's actually very nuanced, that there are scientists working on this around the clock, and that there's this whole and really important angle around messaging and education for physicians to be on the lookout for this actually makes me a lot more comfortable with the decision, not that like anyone needs to convince me, but I feel like, oh, I understand this situation better. Rather than just seeing a news alert from the New York Times saying the J&J is paused, just, and that's it, right? Like this is actually explaining how the science informs the public health strategy. Chuck Todd also asked something that I heard in one of the questions you shared, Brendan, around why not narrow the J&J vaccine for a smaller population. Did you work with European regulators on uh, who went through this with the AstraZeneca vaccine? Because it obviously looks like that these two vaccines, which are made with the similar technology, seem to be having a similar issue with blood clots in a certain in a certain segment uh, of the population. I guess the question is, could you have made a designation that was a bit more narrow and say women? Um, Dr. Peter Hotez was saying it's possible that we'll end up saying women who are taking birth control shouldn't use the shouldn't take the J and J vaccine. Why not make a specific group? on the pause rather than the entire population. Yeah. I don't think we have enough information to do that, Chuck, quite honestly, because when you talk to our colleagues in Europe, particularly in the UK, it isn't only women. There are men involved and it isn't always associated with birth control by any means. So I think we have to be careful. We did not have enough information to make a narrow restriction off the bat. When we get more information, and that's what we're talking about Friday, it may be by the time you get to Friday that they will say, okay, we've looked into it now. Here are some of the restrictions. But I think it would have been too early to have restrictions without looking more closely at it. So super interesting stuff around why we can't just kind of narrow the J&J vaccine to a smaller population, at least of right now. And, you know, if further study says that it might make sense. That's one thing. But on the first look, it seems as if that is not enough of a filter, which I think is really interesting because you'll see like bros on Twitter saying like, well, then just do this, right? Like just don't allow people who are on birth control to use it or just making claims that on the surface seem to make sense. And if you, I don't know, the type of person who believes the stuff that like Matthew Iglesias, <laughs> he's just representative of a lot of bros on, on Twitter who think they're really smart. They're often making claims that seem to make sense, right? And it's the job of scientists like Fauci, like others to say, yes, we can do this because the science explains X, Y, Z reasons, or we can't do that because the science does not justify ABC, other reasons. And I think it's not easy messaging, but the consistency is so important to maintain the integrity of what Dr. Fauci and other public health officials say. I remember I saw uh, Laurel Bristow. She's an infectious disease researcher doing incredible work on Instagram. But when the J&J was first paused and people were saying, like, why don't you just not let women do it? She said, we have no reason, no biological reason right now to confirm that it's because women are menstruating or on birth control. She's like, it could just be women 
are getting the vaccine more than men. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like that could it could just be that like we have no reason to understand or explain why it's women who are having these blood clots. So why would we put restrictions without science explaining why those restrictions are in place? And so really, really hard to do good science messaging. But we are, I don't know, 13, 14 months into a pandemic and hopefully we're getting better and we're expecting better. Yeah, I I definitely acknowledge a lot of that. I think where I would like to see more critical discussion is we heard Fauci answer the question from Chuck Todd about whether this was maybe not the right decision or maybe it should have been handled differently because of the impact on vaccine hesitancy and the fact that people are having their appointments canceled and that that means fewer people are going to be protected from a virus that is genuinely more dangerous than these blood clots are. And so what I would like to know from what Fauci's answer was, and we heard his answer saying, look, they're following the science. That's their job is to follow the science and the risk factors related to those. But what I would like to know is, do they, in a decision like this, have a scientist who is an expert in public opinion who is an expert in understanding how these messages will affect behavior or will affect the actual uptake of these vaccines, will affect the availability and the protection of people that these vaccines afford, right? Like one could very easily think of, you know, pausing 5% of the vaccines being given out, which is what the Johnson & Johnson vaccine represents, could result in more people getting a potentially deadly disease, COVID-19, right? Like, I would love to know, and it is absolutely really important for the media to ask whether the administration in making a decision that has potential downsides in its decision, whether they're even acknowledging and looking at those downsides when they are making their decision and not just assuming that this is some other random Flonase decision. You know what I mean? Like, this isn't Flonase. This is a vaccine against a life-threatening pandemic, and time is ticking. I don't disagree. I think I have calmed down a bit, I guess I would say, in that my expectations have softened, maybe, for those explanations that you're kind of requesting, Brendan, in that a pause of a week might be okay. I think I would be outraged if it was paused for like four to six weeks, maybe, right? But I do think maintaining their strategy of staying with the science has been so, especially around the vaccine, at least, (laughs) less so around testing and social distancing. But everything around the vaccine has been very much based in science and what the clinical trials tell us we can do or not do or plan for. And I think sticking with that as much as possible has been a valuable, reliable strategy. I'm thinking specifically around whether or not to give out more first doses and extend the window and before people get the second dose, right? That that was kind of like a, a giant conversation and the response from the public health officials were pretty much we our studies didn't look at that we we have no way of knowing if and how much that is safe and we're going to do what we know is safe and will work and i think it's their integrity on the line that they have to stick with and and constantly prove 
And if you change strategy behind that too much, I think that becomes a bigger issue around vaccine hesitancy. Yeah. My just concern is, are they looking at science as not just pharmacological science, not just what these drugs do, but how they impact public health in a pandemic? Like public health in a pandemic is a lot more than just what comes out of your research studies. It's what impact that has on society at large, on decision-making at large, on the availability of things at large. Like, can people get their actual vaccine when they need it? You know, is it one dose versus two doses? Like, these are all topics of consideration. And these are all things that should be put into their decision-making model. And if they're only looking at the pharmacological side of things and not the actual public health science of how it's going to actually affect people's decision-making and the the total number of actual cases of COVID, then they're, they're not really looking as broadly as they should be and managing the pandemic with, you know, like I said, with science. Like science is not just pharmacological science. So it looks like a pretty broad range of coverage that we saw on the Sunday shows from acknowledging the controversy around Johnson and Johnson to getting into the details of it or confronting that controversy. Definitely a, a, a week where the shows took very, very different approaches. And it can sometimes tell us more about the shows than it can tell us about the administration and the politics of the issue. That part I actually agree with. All right, Naomi, that takes us to the topic of politics, something in politics worth discussing. Did you have something in politics you wanted to discuss? Yeah, so I wanted to talk about some of the Biden administration officials that went on the show specifically to talk about the recent decision by President Biden to formally, officially end the military presence in Afghanistan. Yeah, I definitely saw some conversation about that on my shows as well. Yeah, so there were definitely a lot of opinions on this. I thought, and I feel like I'm giving a lot of praise today, which is weird, but I thought the Biden administration's talking points were pretty effective, pretty much saying that the threats are not as high in Afghanistan as they were when we first went in there, literally 20 years ago. And the threats are certainly not only in Afghanistan. I thought that is both, it's smart because it convinces Democrats who want the war in Afghanistan to finally end that like, yes, we did a decent job there. And it also is, I think, a good way to convince people who are very concerned about national security that like, actually, we kind of have to do this to focus on our full threat assessment. So we heard this from two different people on State of the Union, President Biden's national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, accomplished making those two points very, very effectively. First, I'm going to ask about Afghanistan. The U.S. forces are coming out after 20 years and more than 2,400 American lives lost. But the Taliban is resurging and strengthening. Can you say that the United States won this war? I can say that the United States achieved the objective it set out when we went into Afghanistan in the first place which was to get the people who attacked us on 9-11. We have degraded al-Qaeda, we have killed bin Laden, and in fact, we killed bin Laden a decade ago, 10 years ago. And since then, the various missions in the war have moved and adjusted and changed, but the fundamental core reason for this conflict in the first place, we achieved that, and that is why President Biden 
has determined that it's time to finally bring this to a close and focus on the battles of the next 20 years rather than the last 20 years. Your own CIA director, William Burns, admitted that leaving Afghanistan creates a significant risk of terrorism resurgence in the region. CNN has new reporting that CIA operators and special operations forces are almost certain to leave Afghanistan as well. So how can you protect America and prevent al-Qaeda and even ISIS from resurging without an intelligence presence on the ground? It is true, as the CIA director said, that we won't have the same level of presence on the ground that we did when we had 3,000 troops or 30,000 troops or 100,000 troops. But the CIA director also said that we will retain sufficient capabilities so that we will have months of warning before al-Qaeda is able to gather again an external plotting capability to threaten the homeland. And even more important, Dana, the terrorist threat has changed dramatically over the last 20 years. It's not just about Afghanistan anymore. Al-Qaeda is in Yemen. ISIS is in Syria and Iraq. Al-Qaeda is in Somalia and Syria and many other places. And so against that dispersed and distributed terrorist threat, we need to allocate our resources in a way that allows us to protect the homeland against a variety of threats from a so, variety of countries and continents, not just from Afghanistan. So, so well said here by Jake Sullivan that essentially the threat is not just in Afghanistan and it is in so many other countries and we need to be able to allocate resources both time and people and service members to properly respond. And it's really important here to also note what was the goal of being there in the first place and that that was accomplished. And so I just thought it acknowledges the concern why people may want the military presence to stay, but at the same time saying like, it's, it's kind of planning the question like, do you only want them in Afghanistan? Because that's not how we're going to stay safe. Right. Yeah, I, I think it was a super effective answer, beginning first by directly answering the question that was asked by Dana Bash, saying, yeah, we actually did achieve our original objective, and then moving on from there. I just want to note that Jake Sullivan was also on Fox News Sunday, and I thought he did an excellent job answering basically every question. It was a real contrast, I thought, to the kind of lack of answers or lack of clarity that frustrated me last week in the interview we heard with Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. Yeah, Blinken was on this week today, and I agree for the most part. Jake Sullivan, I think, is a more effective communicator than Anthony Blinken. But I think Secretary Blinken did a good job of also making this not a case about a smart U.S. decision, but this this is something that our international partners also agree with. He kind of played the, I'm the Secretary of State, and... I talked to lots of people. I talked to lots of people, and they also think this is a good idea, which is also kind of a smart move. Let's take all of this to Secretary of State Antony Blinken. Thanks for being with us. Mr. Secretary, you've heard the reaction from the generals who commanded troops in Afghanistan, including the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs and David Petraeus, who went on to become CIA director, who say this will leave America more vulnerable to terrorist threats, with Joe Dunford saying it would also have a catastrophic effect in Afghanistan itself. Your reaction? Look, uh, Martha, I just got back from, from, from Kabul. I met with uh, President Ghani, met with other leaders there. Uh, that was just after coming from, from NATO, meeting with all of our allies. And uh, across the board, uh, I heard support for the, the president's decision. 
uh, and uh, and the path ahead. Here's the uh, here's the reality. And, and by the way, I have great respect for uh, General Petraeus, uh, General Dunford, uh, and and others. But we had a very uh, deliberate and fully informed uh, process leading up to the decision by the president. And the fact is this: uh, we went to Afghanistan 20 years ago, and we went because we were attacked on 9/11, and we went to take on those who had attacked us on 9/11. Uh, and to make sure that Afghanistan would not again become a haven uh, for terrorism directed at uh, the United States or any of our allies and partners. And uh, we achieved the objectives that we set out to achieve. Uh, Al-Qaeda has been significantly degraded. Its capacity to conduct an attack against the United States now from Afghanistan is not there. Uh, and of course, Osama bin Laden was brought to justice 10 years ago. So the president felt that as we're looking at, at the world now, we have to look at it through the prism of 2021, not 2001. The terrorism threat has moved to, to other places, uh, and we have other very important uh, items on our agenda, uh, including the relationship with China, including dealing with uh, everything from climate change to, to COVID, uh, and that's where we have to focus our, our energy and resources. Yeah, so I, I don't always agree with everything Secretary Blinken says in his interviews, but this paired with what Jake Sullivan said on State of the Union, I just thought like... The Biden administration prepared for this Sunday rollout of this these talking points and nailed it. Yeah, you know, it's very interesting. When I first saw the news last week that U.S. troops would be removed by September 11th, I thought, oh, my goodness, like what a gimmicky date to choose 9-11 as that. It just seemed like, come on. But now that I see these repeated questions from the press saying, you know, did we achieve what we set out to do there? And, you know, criticisms from people like General Petraeus, they, by choosing September 11th, they center the conversation on the original mission and on the original reason for going to Afghanistan by saying, look, we are leaving because we achieved what we went there to do originally on because of 9-11, we are now leaving on 9-11. And that is a very powerful statement using a date to communicate that message. Very unique. And now I'm like, wow, that was actually a really good choice. You know, if you needed a little more time, which we heard a few you know weeks ago that the Biden administration needed more time, couldn't meet the goal that Trump set for May 1st. And then they thought, OK, when are we going to do it? At someone had the idea for 9-11, and now I'm like, wow, that's actually a very Yeah, it makes decision. it an anniversary of the original motivation rather than the actual pulling out. Yep. I hope that person gets a title bump. And I hope more people appreciate what it means, like why, why that matters, why that was a good decision. Totally. What's your moment in politics that you wanted to share from today's shows? So I thought it would be interesting to look at the Biden administration's defense of all the confusion around the refugee resettlement issue. So historically, the United States has admitted refugees from other countries. President Trump significantly reduced the number of refugees that the United States would admit. And in addition to reducing the sheer number, President Trump also reduced the number of countries that the U.S. would accept refugees from. Joe Biden, earlier this year, said that he would commit to increasing the cap that Trump had set at 15,000 to 62,000. Was yes. it earlier this year or during the campaign? No, it was just months ago that he, oh, re, wow. yeah, he recommitted to that, and, or that he committed to that. And just last week, it 
made headlines that Biden was going to stick with the 15,000 number of Donald Trump. And I had actually sent you even before that note that we saw in the news that Biden was being very much criticized for continuing Trump's stingy refugee policy. In fact, I think the headline was the worst president for refugees is not Donald Trump. It is Joe Biden because he had made this commitment months ago. And then there were thousands of refugees who were ready to come to the U.S. based on that. And then they were stranded. After blowback from that this week, within hours, the Biden administration said, oh, no, 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 no. We're not sticking with the historically low 15,000 number. We're going to increase it. Margaret Brennan. But not to our original promise, and we'll let you know about what that number is. Right, exactly. <laughs> they did not commit. So I thought it'd be interesting to look at both the questions that we saw in this area and the answers. And we had Margaret Brennan on Face the Nation asking the UN ambassador, Linda Thomas Greenfield, about this. And then we had Chris Wallace on Fox News Sunday asking Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, about it. So let's first take a look at how Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, explained this on Fox News Sunday and some of Chris's critical questions. And so the president wanted to go with this in two steps. The first step was to change the allocation so that people in Africa could literally get on planes this week. And the second would be to raise the cap as we were fixing the system and its processing. He took the first step this past week. He will take the second step in the weeks ahead. And I think there was some misunderstanding on Friday about the import of his decision Friday morning, which was focused on the allocation, not on the cap. But, but in fact, in the presidential determination that the president signed that was issued on Friday, it talked about 15,000. Yes, it did talk about maybe going higher later, but it set the cap at 15,000 at this point. And, and a lot of people have pointed out, including some Democratic senators like Richard Blumenthal, handling refugees and handling the, the, the flow of illegal immigration at the border are two separate paths held uh, done by two separate programs. And they suggest the real problem here, the real reason you were sticking with the Trump cap until you got blowback was because you got a crisis at the border and suddenly you didn't want that many immigrants coming across the border into the country. Well, first of all, the Office of Refugee Resettlement is the same office that handles both unaccompanied children at the border and refugees coming in from around the world. And so, as it turns out, President Biden and his team had to dig into whether we could allocate the resources effectively to be able to uh, get folks uh, into the refugee pipeline and into the United States. He is absolutely committed to making sure that not only is America welcoming, welcoming to refugees, not only do we get people on planes immediately by changing those allocations, which were rooted in xenophobia and even racism, but also that we raise the cap. He is committed to that, and he will follow through on that. Right. So a very key kind of clarification by Chris Wallace there when Sullivan tried to say, no, 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 this number of 15,000, that wasn't the main thing on Friday. That wasn't what Friday was about. And Chris Wallace says, actually, it actually had the number 15,000 in it. So yes, it was. So Jake Sullivan, again, as you noted, Naomi, he's not making a commitment to what the number will be. We don't hear that from the Biden administration in that answer. But Margaret Brennan was a lot more direct in trying to figure out what in the world is going to be the final number. So you do expect that goal of 62,500 to be met? 
I know that that goal is there and everything will be done to meet that goal. I also know how challenging it is to, to reach it, but I can say without any doubt that every resource that we have available to us will be put into reaching that goal and possibly even going beyond. So that is a much more direct commitment from the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. saying, look, the goal still is the original 62,000 refugee admissions and that we might even go beyond it. So I think both Margaret Brennan and Chris Wallace did a pretty good job in digging into the details on this and having their facts right and ready when the people they were interviewing were trying to kind of like wave these questions off or try to say, oh, no, there, there's nothing to see here. We didn't mess up. We didn't change our policy. We, we just, uh, you're just misinterpreting what we meant to do. When, yeah, it really was a reversal. It really has been going back and forth on this topic. And as you said, Naomi, at least before we heard from Linda Thomas-Greenfield, there was no recommitment to the 62,000 number. Yeah, Dana Bash also put this question very explicitly to Jake Sullivan. And he pretty much said, we're not going to, you know, they haven't made a decision, but they'll definitely be increasing it over 15. And at no point did any of the Biden administration officials agree to even being close to one side or the other. Like it w- there was literally zero commitment in terms of how many people would be allowed in. So I don't know if Ambassador Thomas Greenfield was had different marching orders or if she just committed them, the Biden administration, to something they're not quite yet ready to recommit to. But I think it's they're grueling questions that the Biden administration officials deserve. Absolutely. And 1000%. And that's where I think I'm pretty impressed by the questioning by these hosts because we're not hearing from actual refugees. It's not often easy to book a refugee on the Sunday shows, although I bet they could do it. I Certainly, we saw Samantha Bee do it in the past on her show, but at least they are asking the questions from the perspective of, you made a commitment, why are you breaking this promise? Which is literally exactly the phrasing that we heard from Margaret Brennan earlier in her interview. Exactly. Well, that's it for today's episode. We already did ratings, Brendan. It's kind of interesting having that already done. Yes. Which means it takes us straight to our dialogue challenge. Ooh, I like that. So I think for today's challenge, I don't know if this is more like a work situation or a life situation, but I am just like really thinking about the whole reframing that the Biden administration officials are using or have at their disposal by using the 9-11 kind of anniversary to restructure the whole conversation almost around the military leaving their footprint essentially in Afghanistan. And I wonder if there are other topics, if there's other conversations that we might be engaging in where it's hard to kind of have someone see what we're trying to accomplish and how do we reframe a conversation so both parties are looking at it the same way. Yeah, 
I mean, it's fascinating to think of. It's like a just interesting uh, of, of dates as something that you can use to do that, or maybe the location that you invite yeah. someone to meet you at to discuss the topic. The setting in which to have that right. conversation. The people yeah. who are invited into that conversation. Totally. There's so many different different ways to shape the conversation beyond just your words and your messages. And it makes me think that's kind of what Martha Raddatz did with the attorney for George Floyd, right? It's a conversation around police violence that we've been having for a long time, but by having someone else participate and really start the conversation, it felt totally different. Absolutely. Great dialogue challenge and definitely has me thinking. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, if you have any suggestions on how we might need to reframe things or anything, you can always email us at podcast at polylog.com. You can always tweet at me at Soto Naomi underscore. You can tweet at me at Beastidal and you can tweet at the show at Polylogcast. Thanks, everyone. And we will talk with you next week. Bye. Bye.